RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. On 15 March 2022, the Economic Crime, Transparency and Enforcement Act came into force after having been fast-tracked through Parliament in response to urgent calls for the UK's economic crime laws to be tightened. This Act is one part of the long-awaited response to calls for reform in this area, including calls for the reform of the law of corporate criminal liability, which listeners may recall from our episodes with Law Commissioner David Allen and Barrister Robin Loof. But what is it that the Economic Crime Act does? Here to help us find answers to this question is Tom Godfrey. Tom is a barrister at 23 Essex Street Chambers, where he has a wide-ranging and diverse practice that sees him instructed on the most serious and complex crime and financial crime cases. Tom is an excellent advocate and a pleasure to listen to, which one might expect given that he has a background in theatre, which includes highlights such as playing a hooker-smoking turtle in a production of Alice in Wonderland. He then turned his attention to the law, and here we are today. Tom, welcome to Taxing Matters. Hi, Alice. Thanks for that introduction. So, the Economic Crime Act, it's much delayed and much lauded. It has finally become law. How did it come about, though? Well, you're right to say it's been a long-awaited response to what's been a problem the government have identified a long time ago. And the proposals are not new ones, tabled since 2016. Whilst certainly events in Ukraine have precipitated the introduction of the Act, the war itself, of course, is not its origin. The government indicated its intention a long time ago to establish a register of overseas entities. And that's what we finally now have within Part 1 of this new act. The real question is why the delay? Six years after they indicated their initial intention, all legislation takes some time to come through, but the government seemed to have been slower than certainly most people would have wanted. In 2017, the government themselves called for evidence of the creation of such a register. And as we know, in July of 2018, they published a draft register of an overseas entities bill, then followed a public consultation. So they've been on the case, but it's taken, I think, the recent events to really mean that there could be no further delay in implementing this act. So the cynical amongst us might suggest that there may have been some impetus on the part of the government not to discourage foreign investment into the UK, particularly so after Brexit, of course. But recent events have certainly focused on these issues. The act was passed just three days ago on its first reading. As we know, the aim is to clamp down on the use of illicit funds in UK properties and to help enforcement against those who seek to do so. I suppose the real question will be how much teeth this legislation actually has, and importantly, whether they are willing to put in the funds and resources that will be required to really follow through on what a fairly grandiose promise is being made by the government. 
So as you've alluded there, the Act is in three parts. The first part dealing with an overseas property register, the second expanding the unexplained wealth order regime, and the third part introducing a new penalty regime for sanctions breaches. Taking each of these parts in turn, why was it seen as necessary to enact this particular provision? Well, there's been a long-held belief that the UK, England and Wales, particularly London, is a haven for dirty money. We've all seen depicted in the media and indeed in TV shows the views quite rightly held as to the problems that London has in terms of money laundering. One of the principal aims of the Act is to crack down on those individuals and businesses based overseas from using real estate in the UK to launder money. So that's the principal aim. Kwasi Kwarteng, our business secretary, believes that the implementation of this act will have an immediate dissuasive effect on oligarchs attempting to hide their ill-gotten gains. Uh, Rishi Sunak said our Economic Crime Act will enable us to crack down harder and faster on dirty money and those who support Putin and his regime. So a clear message from the government as to who the bill is aimed at and in a sense, triumphantly laying down the gauntlet to these foreign nationals who they perceive are investing dirty money through our capital and elsewhere. The necessity of the register, certainly as far as the government are concerned, it seems, is that there's no such register hitherto existed. And in creating this fanfare that the government have, they are in some ways highlighting the deficiencies of the legislation that was hitherto in place. Certainly, it's the register of overseas entities that is proposed that the government sees as a real tool in seeking to prevent this laundered money flowing through the capital. So what is it that the new provisions in this part of the Act do? Broadly speaking, as it says within the Act in Section 1, it makes provisions designed to compel overseas entities to register if they own land. So in other words, it introduces a requirement for overseas owners of UK properties to disclose the information as to who the beneficial owners are. So far as an overseas entity is concerned, that's defined as a legal entity that is governed by the law of a country or territory outside the UK. So all non-UK entities that own or buy real property in the UK are mandated now to join a public register listing the entity's beneficial owner. Once such entities are registered, they will become a registered overseas entity. The requirement aims to prevent criminals hiding their property ownership behind chains of obscure shell companies because they will be forced to disclose who exactly the entities are. In terms of the registration, a person will be a beneficial owner if they either hold more than 25% of the shares or voting rights in that entity. They have the right to appoint or remove the majority of the directors of that entity, or they have the right to exercise or actually do exercise significant influence or control over that entity. So those are the individuals who will find themselves having to register under the, this new provision, part one of this act. Of course, then companies' house will have to implement that registration, which they will anticipate and endeavour to do as quickly as they can. The rules being introduced under part one apply retrospectively. So those properties bought since January 1999 
in England and Wales and since December 2014 in Scotland will require disclosure by the uh, entity outside the UK. They will have six months in which to register that interest from the date the provision comes into force. I should say that the original suggestion was that it should be an 18-month period from the implementation of this act with which people could register their overseas entities and the interest. And that was significantly reduced down to six months. And indeed, there was argument as to being further reduced. Certainly, Labour supported a further reduction down to 28 days. But six months is the period by which such interest must be registered. So what is it that businesses might need to know about this particular provision? Well, it's the registration that's now incumbent upon overseas entities to register with the newly enacted Register of Overseas Entities. And as I said, it impacts overseas owners' holdings of UK land since January of 1999. So one has to go back over 20 years to look at what has been acquired by overseas entities, then requires the disclosure of those properties. It's an obligation on overseas entities to register or dispose of its interest in the property within six months of this legislation coming into force. So far as part one and part two, and we'll look at part two, unexplained wealth orders in due course, they haven't come into force yet. Part three have, in fact, come into force so far as the sanctions changes. But as soon as it comes into force, part one, within six months, individuals and entities will have to comply with the strictures that are being put in place and register as required. So there are obligations being imposed upon individuals that hitherto hadn't been in place. And the other thing, Alice, of course, overseas companies, those involving overseas entities, will need to comply with the new rules, ensure that they are properly registered at the company's house to enable them to deal with their UK property. Also, anyone transacting with such owners will need to see evidence of such compliance, including, of course, anti-money laundering compliance. So that's the first part of that Act. The second part is, of course, unexplained wealth orders regime. Why was it necessary to amend this particular regime brought into force in the Criminal Finances Act 2017? I think they have realised based upon the relatively few numbers of UWOs that have actually been used or enforced, I think it's four, that they, this is an underused resource. What this Act seeks to do is, in effect, make it easier to use unexplained wealth orders against individuals. The idea certainly was that the plan behind UWOs, that there was an expectation that they would see an increase in civil recovery. And that's what the UWO has provided, power to confiscate criminal assets without having to prove to the criminal standard burden being placed on the individual to justify the legitimacy of the funds. But as I say, rarely being used. What we have now, having been introduced, albeit not actually in force yet, but certainly as part of part two of this act, seeks to make the use of these powers easier 
It expands the definition of property covered to include houses held in trust or shell companies. It provides more time to the investigators to make their case. And really significantly, I think, the investigators are protected from having to pay costs. And that was always seen as a big disincentive to unexplained wealth orders, unless the investigators have acted unreasonably, which is a fairly high threshold to satisfy costs are not recoverable. Incentivizing the pursuance of these orders without the financial risk to the bodies seeking the orders. Having given us the background to that, what is it that these provisions have actually introduced? What they've really done is establish a lower test for the granting of a UWO. In this sense, instead of the court being satisfied that the known sources of lawful income would be insufficient to obtain the property, the previous test, it will now be sufficient if the court is satisfied that there are reasonable grounds for suspecting that the property has been obtained through unlawful conduct. So lowering the threshold, really, the test, and as I say, the idea being to make it easier to obtain UWOs. It also has provided the enforcement authorities with the ability to apply for an interim freezing order alongside the application for a UWO to work in tandem. So what do you see the impact to businesses from these changes as being? Well, I think businesses need to be aware of the changes in terms of of their compliance and their obligations. The Act will bring individuals who own property in the UK through trusts and shell companies within the scope of the UWO rules. For businesses, the compliance checks that would need to be undertaken so far as ensuring its trusts and shell companies now can be susceptible to unexplained wealth orders. Having dealt with part one, property register, part two, the unexplained wealth orders, we now move on to part three, which is arguably the most topical of the three parts introduced by this Act. It introduced a new penalty regime and new designation provisions. Why was it seen as necessary to introduce these changes? I think the commonly held view of the UK, England and Wales, is that we had a weak record of sanction enforcement. I think especially when compared with the US, what this Act seeks to do is to beef up the sanctions that the UK can impose, and really as a sort of political flexing of muscles to show that we are being tough. In many ways, it lives up to that billing. So what is it that these provisions actually do? Well, it amends the existing law in respect of sanctions in some quite significant ways. The most significant seems to me to be under Chapter 3, Part 2 of the Act. In individuals, companies that breach a financial sanction, prohibition, or fail to comply with an obligation, will become subject to civil monetary penalties imposed by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, OFSI, on a strict liability basis. That's the significant aspect of this part of the Act. Liability now rests on a strict liability basis. Previously, a requirement to receive a fine for sanction breach, the person must have known or suspected they were breaching sanctions law. The basis for liability now is a strict liability one. In other words, it caters for errors and it caters for breaches that are unbeknownst to the individuals or the companies. It increases, I would suggest quite substantially, the scope 
for civil monetary penalties, removing any real test as to liability. And that's the most significant change. What other changes has the Act brought about? The Act also enables authorities to publicly identify companies and individuals that it suspects on the balance of probabilities have breached financial sanction rules. The public identification of companies or individuals will, of course, come with collateral damage, even the suggestion that they have breached sanction rules. So that is a challenge. One other thing that Act has brought in, which again I think is significant, is that the imposition of sanctions now is possible on the basis of what's called an urgent procedure. When another jurisdiction with whom the UK aligns its sanctions policy, the US, Australia, Canada and others, and where those countries have designated an individual or an entity, and the minister in this country considers that it's in the UK's interest to designate the same person or entity, the UK can adopt that decision. And this is an entirely new basis on which sanctions designations can be made. The idea behind it is to provide a basis across the jurisdictions when equivalent tests are being supplied, parity. But it does remove the requirement, at least for the initial period of 56 days, to have reasonable grounds to suspect that the person is an involved person. So, in other words, going on the decision of another state and adopting that decision, which is a big change as far as the regime is concerned. These are incredibly significant changes to the sanctions regime of the UK. What is it that businesses in the UK or operating through it need to be thinking about in terms of their own compliance and how they incorporate these changes? They are very significant changes and they will have an impact upon businesses. What businesses need to be conscious of are their own sanction provisions and a review of their own sanction provisions, their own screening of clients. These are new and wide-ranging changes that will require interpretation. And of course, if businesses aren't clear, then they should seek help and assistance to their own positions and the definitions of this new act. There are many who say that this is a good start. This act creates some much-needed change, but it doesn't go far enough to tackle the issues with economic crime. What do you think is coming next? Well, there's already a proposed second economic crime bill for later this year. We've seen with previous legislative efforts against economic crime that really its effectiveness in practice will turn upon how serious the government is to put financial resources to this issue, to properly fund enforcement authorities. And if they are willing to do that, and this isn't merely a reaction to current situations, then these changes are likely to have a significant impact. The stated aim by Parliament is the increased impetus on enforcement, but it's going to require proper funding. And if it is properly funded, then I think that these will have a significant impact. And it will be followed up maybe later this year by a second bill, which again has significant proposals. The main one being companies' house reform, requiring directors and persons of significant control to verify their identity with companies' house. A further important proposal would be to allow companies to have only one layer 
of corporate directors who must be UK-based. There are further proposals for new powers to seize crypto assets, anti-money laundering powers to be increased, and perhaps in light of the changes so far as this country's use of foreign countries' determinations of sanctions, applying sanctions to the same individuals, no doubt the sharing of information on economic crime is due to be increased. So what about the complex question of the law of corporate criminal liability? We've talked about that a lot on taxing matters. What is your take on when that might be actually tackled? Well, I'm not sure. As has been stated, this Economic Warfare Act, which is how it's being described by some, and that's the direction of the government in terms of what they aim to achieve. If that is right, and this act seems to demonstrate that it is, then one would hope that corporate criminal liability reform would be next on the table. But it's been tabled for quite some time. It remains to be seen how and if the government proposed to tackle it. But I suppose they've implemented this legislation, and it will be interesting to see how this is used. And that may be a guide as to where the government might go in the future so far as corporate criminal liability is concerned. In general, what should businesses be considering and what steps should they be taking in light of this new Act and possible future developments? I would suggest that companies scrutinise the Act for themselves. It's quite dense, but it's obviously an important Act. Companies need to be aware of the minutiae that's contained therein. Compliance is the key. They need to review and re-review their sanctions provisions. They need to ensure compliance with this new Act and indeed with a wary eye on what Acts are to come in the future, I would reiterate that it is, as it has been, incumbent upon businesses to ensure compliance with these sanctions regulations, but they are increased as a direct result of three days ago. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this week's episode. So thank you again, Tom, for joining us. You can find Tom through LinkedIn and on 23 Essex Street Chambers website. If you have any questions for me or for Tom or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks.